Okay, well I'll be the, I don't know, am I the fourth woman who's welcomed you today? I hope you feel like really welcome. Welcome. Um, All of you should have a handout, and they were on your tables, and in future weeks they'll be on stands as you come in. Now those handouts, let's just say right up front, they're gonna look different when Julie prepares them versus when I prepare them. Sometimes there'll be blanks to fill in, sometimes there'll just be space for you to write. Those are for you, to use however you want to. Nobody's gonna judge you, you don't have to write a single thing. You can make your grocery list on there if you want to, I don't care. They're for you, but some people learn better when they are able to write something down. So use those however you'd like throughout our time together. You'll also have your book, and then you'll have a Bible or a Bible app on your phone. All of the scriptures that I'll be talking about throughout the lecture, I'll put up here, just because it's hard to shuffle everything at your table while you're trying to pay attention. Maybe you're taking notes and trying to flip through a Bible just might be the one thing that that old straw, you know, that breaks your camel's back. So we're not gonna worry about that. They'll be up here. There'll also be more scriptures on your handout than what I'll have time to cover with you in the mornings. So just a a little note-taking hint, if you just put a check mark beside the scriptures that we go over, if you want to later go back and look at the other scriptures, you can more easily, okay? So that's kind of how uh, the setup will work each week. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for this time we have together. Thank you for the gift of your word, for your spirit who is our teacher. Thank you for each woman here. And We open our minds and our hearts to you now. In Jesus' name we pray these things, amen. Well, when Taylor was little, this is actually Taylor. Um, He's big now, he's taller than me, 28. But when he was little, I was teaching at TCU, it was spring break, and he and I were going to Austin, Texas to, we lived in Fort Worth, and we were going to Austin to visit my parents, Ken was working. So we went to get on the plane. And you know how there's normally a backup at first class? And so they were all getting situated, and the cockpit door was open, and so I bent down to Taylor and I said, that's the pilot, and that's the co-pilot, and that's all the controls. So, you know, he's standing there with his little self, you know, all wide-eyed and his mouth agape, and we go on back to our seat, and a few moments later, the stewardess came back and asked, would you like to meet the pilot? Well, of course, you know, so I looked at him, I said, go ahead. So the stewardess takes Taylor on to meet the pilot, and he comes back, and his face, you you could tell he had met the pilot. Plus he had the wings, right? You know, those plastic wings. So they put it on his little blue t-shirt and he sat down there beside me, so excited. The flight happens, we land in Austin. Now this was before 9-11. And so that's when you could go to to the door. Remember those days when you could go straight to the gate? And so my parents, my mom and dad, were waiting for us as we came off the plane. And my mom asked the inevitable flight question that everyone gets, how was the flight, right? Now everybody on the plane could answer that question. Everybody, they all were on the same plane. Maybe someone might make a comment about turbulence versus no turbulence, service, the food, we were on time, late, maybe the person they were sitting by, whatever. But everybody could answer the question, we're all on the same plane. 
Well, as I'm answering my mom, I just said, fine. Taylor was up in dad's, my dad, his granddaddy's arms, and he said, I met the pilot and I got these wings. All on the same flight, two different responses. Most of us had a nice flight, but Taylor met the pilot. He was totally off-field. He could hardly wait to tell grandmother and granddaddy, and his face couldn't hide it. Why do we study God's words? Now, I don't mean for this to be a trick question, so I don't want you to look at your neighbor and tell her why you study God's word or why you're here. I just want us to start with some knots. Why do we not study God's word? We don't study God's word to learn more about the Bible. Like there's gonna be some heavenly trivia question someday. That's not why we study God's word. Another not, we do not study God's word to obey it. Now some of you just bristled up and thought, I'm not coming back next week, blasphemy. But you hang with me. If that is why I am studying God's word is to obey it, I am breeding legalism into my own life. Because there is a higher purpose to studying God's word than to obey it. Let's look at his word together and see this. First John, and we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. If someone claims I know God but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person's a liar and is not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we are living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Look at John 14, 15, this is Jesus speaking. If you love me, obey my commandments. Now looking at these two scriptures, I want you to notice a really important progression. To know him is to love him. To love him is to obey him. And to obey him is to live as Jesus did. Don't miss that. So I am studying God's word every day in order to know God. And then as I know him, I love him. And as I love him, I obey him. And as I obey him, I become more like Jesus. This is the airplane ride versus the I met the pilot. Bible is not a Bible study is not meant to be just some checklist that you check off. How many of you, now I'm older than almost everybody in the room. This is really sad. Linda, thank you so much for being here. Gosh, I love you. So, but for those of us that are older, you might remember, oh, and Winnie's here too. Winnie, thank you so much. The, for those of us that are older, do you remember the little envelopes that you checked off in, uh, when you came to church every Sunday and it would say, brought your Bible, read your Bible daily, brought your tithes. It, and we actually still do something very similar to that today with a jar and marbles and stuff. All of that's good. I'm not saying it's not good. It is really, really good. But Bible study is not meant to be a check off of your list. I did my Bible study. It's a privilege and an opportunity to meet the author, to actually meet God. So every day as I study God's word, I look at what do I learn about God? What is he like? What does he like? What does he not like? 
to know God through his word. Now, how does this work in the book of Ruth that we'll be studying? Do you realize 60 of the 85 verses in Ruth are actually she said, he said, she said, then she said, then he said? God doesn't speak one time in the book of Ruth, nor does he make a physical appearance one time, never in the book of Ruth. There is no burning bush telling um, Naomi and her husband to leave one place, telling Naomi and her daughter-in-laws to leave another place. There is no parting of the sea, although they have to get around one. There is no dropping of manna and quail from heaven to provide for their food. No, they have to go out in the field. Ruth goes out in the field and gathers it herself. There's no miracle that God does, although he could have, but he doesn't. So what do we learn in the book of Ruth? Well, there's two ordinary women that face life's sorrows and difficulties. That's the story of Ruth. And we see God at work. We see his character. Now, I just wrote down a few, and these won't, may not be yours, what God shows you of himself. But God is sovereign. God is involved. God provides. God is faithful. God is working. The book of Ruth is an affirmation to me that I can trust God in my day-to-day living down here on this earth that is filled with sorrows and difficulties and disappointments. Again, that's not an exhausting list. I can trust him. Do you know what else we're gonna see is we're gonna see life change happening. If you just look at one character, Naomi, and you're gonna meet her this week as you study if you haven't looked at Ruth before, and you're gonna see a life change happen for Naomi. And I encourage you this week, I know you just have a couple of days to do, but just listen to the whole or read the whole book of Ruth. It's only four chapters. It's really short. As a matter of fact, I listened to it again this morning while I was getting ready to come here. It's less than 30 minutes if you put it on a Bible app and push the sound and let it just read through for you. That's a wonderful thing to do at the beginning of this story. Hear the whole story. That's okay. That's not cheating. You can listen to the whole story and then sit down and do your Bible study. And you're going to see Naomi change. Now, perhaps this is a bigger miracle than dropping manna from heaven, is that God actually works in this woman's life to change her heart. And that's what I'm praying for me. And that's what I'm praying for you, that through this study, God will change us to be more like his son. Well, how do we study God's word? The first way we study God's word is intentionally. Ready, ready, not just for the airplane ride, but to meet the pilot. Not to just complete the assignment, but to meet God, to know him more. So we study God's word intentionally. We also study God's word in totality. Okay, I just have to say, I wrote this the day after the eclipse. How many of you heard the word totality 70 million times? So I'm writing, I'm like, in totality. Okay, there it is, eclipse day. In totality, in two ways. First, in context. We never wanna just study what we're studying, okay? It's important to take it in the whole of God's word, his whole story in totality. Let's look just at the first book 
uh, the first chapter, excuse me, the first verse of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. Now chances are in a room this big, we have several different versions of the Bible. And I think that's wonderful. And I hope you talk about that in your small groups around your table. I just want to give you some openings from different versions of the Bible. Listen to these and see if it brings to mind a phrase that we might hear today. In the days when the judges ruled. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. Long ago when judges ruled. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed. Do these phrases remind you of any way that a story begins? This one I'm going to give you. And ladies, this is the only one I'm going to give you because I can wait you out. I taught college for years, okay? So this one I will give you. Listen to the messages beginning. Once upon a time, it was back in the days when, don't those beginnings sound like once upon a time? The good fairy tales, right? All the best fairy tales start once upon a time. And there's a prince and a princess and they meet and there's some really horrible stuff that happens in between and then they live happily ever after. Well, Ruth is much like this, but it's not a fairy tale. It is a true story. It's from God's word. It actually happened, but it is a love story, actually on several levels. You'll see it's a love story between Naomi and Ruth, Naomi's Ruth's mother-in-law. It's also a love story between Ruth and Boaz, and most importantly, it's a love story between God and his people, how he cares for his people. The next phrase up there tells the timing of the book of Ruth. This one I'm not giving you. I will stand up here until you tell me. When does the book of Ruth take place? It's going to make it hard on the women listening online. Thank you. At the time when the judges ruled. Now when I say judges, what image comes to mind? Maybe something like this. A a picture of the general justice system or a courtroom scene. Maybe a particular face comes to mind or maybe these faces or maybe these faces if we're honest. Um, (laughs) This is not culturally what the time of the judges meant back in Ruth's day. It was more like this. This is an artist rendering of three judges, specific judges from the Bible. Think military commander, if you will, or a patriotic leader who rises up during a time of national crisis. In the book of Judges, which by the way is found immediately before Ruth, in the Bible, you can read about this time in history. It's a lot longer than the book of Ruth. I just want you to read Ruth this week. I'll tell you about Judges. I'll give you a big overview, okay? 350 years is the time of the Judges. 350 years. There were 13 Judges mentioned in the book of Judges, 12 men and one woman. The one woman is pictured up there, Deborah. Looks like she's about to kill him, and he does. It's pretty gross. And there are four more Judges listed in 1 Samuel. Now this is the time, the time of the judges comes right after Joshua. So let's look at Joshua for a minute. You remember who Joshua is? Moses is the big guy who's had the movie made about him, the Ten Commandments, right? He takes the children of Israel out of Egypt. Joshua was his number two man. Moses dies and Joshua is actually the one who takes the children of Israel into the promised land, into Canaan. In the first half of the book of Joshua, the Israelites are conquering the land. 
you might remember some miracles. That's the, the Jordan is, is parted for them to walk through. Um, the walls of Jericho fall down. So there's some pretty big miracles happening for Joshua in his time. Israelite pushes to the center of Canaan and proceeds to defeat the Canaanite armies. And so the main cities are conquered and destroyed. So Israelite possesses the land. And the whole second half of the book of Joshua is Israelite possessing the land. So they go in and Joshua divides the lands by the tribes of Israel. And there they all are in, in the promised land but with the mandate still from God to finish wiping out the Canaanites. Now you might stop and think, why would God do that? Why would he say destroy a whole people? There were two reasons. The first of which was because he was, God was using Israel as his arm of judgment on the people, on the Canaanites. Secondly, it was because God wanted to establish in this promised land, the worship of the one true God. So Joshua dies and does this farewell address and has this famous placable. Some of you may have it in your home and this is where it comes from. This is Joshua's farewell address and at the end of it, Joshua 24, he says, but as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. So although Joshua up to his dying breath is encouraging them to obey God, to serve God, they didn't do it. So after Joshua dies, a new generation comes along and we find this in Judges 2.10. This is the description. After that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. So the Israelites did not obey God. They did not destroy all the Canaanites. And thus the people of Israel began adapting the worship of their neighbors, the Canaanites. And so they began worshiping multiple gods instead of the one true God. Now this disobedience results in a spiraling cycle. You are feeling like, wow, I just learned the whole book of Joshua. Now you're going to learn the whole book of Judges. You ready? Okay. So this is the downward cycle that happens to the children of Israel. It begins with their disobedience to God. Then the Israelites forget about the loyalty to the Lord and they start worshiping the other gods. So they depart from God. Now God still loves his people and so then God disciplines the children of Israel and he typically does this with one of the nations that are right nearby. And sometimes the nation invades, sometimes the nation actually takes some of the Israelites as captives, but it's bad, it's not a good thing. But God is doing this as discipline because he loves them. Then eventually the Israelites cry out in despair to God. And then when God sees that they're ready to return to him, he delivers them through a judge. Thus you have the time of the judges. Okay, that first book in Ruth, this is exactly what it's talking about. So God will rise up a judge who is more like a military leader who comes in and goes against the oppressor of the Israelites. Isn't history so fun? Don't, aren't you just so excited? So here comes this judge gonna beat down the, uh, the oppressor and then there is a time of peace for the Israelites and the judge leads them in the right way of obedience to God again and then guess what happens the judge dies and then when the judge dies the whole cycle begins again starts with the d- disobedience to God 
This cycle is repeated seven times in the book of Judges. And with each cycle, as sin does, it gets worse and worse and worse. 350 years of this cycle. So we read in Judges 21, 25, in those days Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. This phrase is repeated six times explaining this time period when Ruth is written, okay? You'll look deeper, by the way, at this verse and answer some questions in day two of next week's study, all right? So this is what's going on. It is believed that Ruth, the book of Ruth, occurred during the time of peace that followed Gideon's victory over the Midianites. Gideon was the fifth judge, so think about it. The cycle had been going for a while, all right? We study in totality in regards to context, and we also study in totality in regards to culture. I just briefly mentioned that with the judges, right? The judges were different then than the judges are now. You'll run into some other cultural uh, differences that are gonna stand out to you as you read the book of Ruth or listen to it this week. Gleaning rules, a marriage proposal at the foot of a bed, A sandal contract, a kinsman redeemer. Stay tuned for all of those. Don't be a woman who quits. You come back. Keep coming back. You'll hear all of those. Okay, so we study intentional. We study in totality. And we study individually and corporately. Individually in your home, using your Bible or your Bible app, your workbook, your schedule. Remembering the purpose is to meet God to meet the author, to know him more, not just to do your Bible study, okay? And then we study corporately together here, either Julie or I will be here at the front, and then you'll go into your small groups and you'll continue to study and learn from one another. If you must miss for whatever reason, on the back of your handout at the bottom is where you can go to listen to the missed lectures. Stick with the schedule, just keep on preparing and come back when you can. Your group will miss you, but we want you to come back if you need to miss for whatever reason. So as we study God's word, we ask ourselves, so what, now what? And you're gonna see this in the upcoming lecture notes. In every lecture I do, you'll always see some so what, now what? Let me just give you the background of this so what, now what? Uh, It's been over 10 years ago, I don't remember the year, that I taught um, a Bible study on how to study the Bible. And so for that, I read several books, and they were all so good, but I'm not gonna lie, I was overwhelmed with the number of questions I was supposed to be asking myself every time I opened God's Word. And I typed them up, and it's like it's more than a page. I'm like, seriously, Lord Jesus, I don't think this is gonna work for me. I, I... I dutifully tucked it in the back of my Bible. And it was overwhelming, I'm just gonna tell you, it overwhelmed me. And then God sweetly gave me, so what, now what? He said, Rhonda, why don't you just look at it that way? It made such good sense to me because I was thinking of every time I teach college, I get a textbook to teach from and it's always fatter than what my Bible is. And to think our Bible is only this big. Yeah, I don't know, if you have the large print version, you know, it, it gets bigger as you get older, ladies. That's all I'm trying to tell you. But it's not that big when you think about that's all we've got. That's what God gave us. So everything that's in there, 
He's so purposeful. So for me to ask as I read his word, so what, now what? In other words, Lord Jesus, why, why did you put this, why did you include this? And, and what is it that you want me to be, to learn, to do, to say, to think differently because of it? That became a lot easier for me. So that's what so what, now what means to me. In Hebrews, Let's look at some scriptures here. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. If you stop there, you might actually never want to open your Bible because it's like, wow, okay, well, that's really scary. It's a two-edged sword, and God knows everything, and I'm going to be accountable to him. But you must read the next verse in context, remember? We always study God's word in context. Look at the very next verses and see what you learn about God. So then, so then, Since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Do you see all the beautiful truths about God in that? I, I, I hope you do. They're highlighted in yellow, a few of them there for you, right? Isn't that beautiful? When you look at, oh, we have a great high priest and he's right there in heaven, right next to God. He understands our weakness because he's faced everything we face here. He's faced it. Not menopause, I'm just gonna say that. Jesus did not do menopause. (laughs) That just came out. I don't think we can erase that from the tape, but anyway. (laughs) Look at him, he's gracious, he's merciful, and so what, now what, what am I to do with this? Look, so let us come boldly to the throne. That's what I'm to do with this. So don't let the first part of the verse where it talks about the word of God being a two-edged sword and God knowing everything and you're gonna be held accountable before him. Keep reading. There's no one I would rather know everything about me and be held accountable to than a loving, gracious, merciful God who is offering his very throne room to me. That's amazing. Okay, let's keep going. Got off track just a little bit there. All right, John. Let's look at John 14, 26. But when the Father sends the advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. Listen to the next one and you're listening for who is our teacher. But you have received the Holy Spirit and he lives within you, so you don't need anyone to teach you what is true, for the Spirit teaches you everything you need to know and what he teaches is true. It's not a lie. So just as he taught you, remain in fellowship with Christ. Who is our teacher? The Holy Spirit. So God teaches us through his Holy Spirit and through his word. Listen to 2 Timothy. Again, all of these are on your handout. 2 Timothy 3 says, all scripture, all scripture. So that means the book of Ruth, even though God doesn't appear or speak, all scripture, okay? So the book of Ruth 
is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Then in 2 Corinthians, but whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So when I turn to God, he takes the veil away. Well, what does that mean? For the Lord is the Spirit, and whenever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed, who have turned to the Lord, can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. Back to the initial logical progression. The more I know God, the more I love God, The more I love God, the more I obey God, and the more I obey God, the more I live like Jesus lives because he does the transforming work in my life. That's a miracle. Well, what exactly are we studying this fall? What are we studying? Whoops, I wanna go back. Ruth 1.1, we've already looked at that scripture and we saw the when was the history, the time of the judges, right? We talked about the time of the judges in context, and do, does anyone remember what judge I said many believe Ruth was written during? Which judge? Gideon. Gideon. Now, this was a peaceful time, but it wasn't an easy time, because what was happening? You can see it in that verse. A famine, that's not easy. You know, I don't really know what it means to be hungry and all reality, right? But a famine's not an easy time. What land were they in? Where were they? Judah. Bethlehem and Judah even. We get it even more specific than just Bethlehem and Judah. There's also another place mentioned. Where's the other place? Moab. So there's two main settings geographically for our book of Ruth. This is Canaan in the time of the judges, and it's easiest if you find the Dead Sea, the blue body of water, and you look to the left or the west, you see Judah right there, and in the north, you see Bethlehem. And then if you look to the right or to the east, you see Moab below the yellow. By the way, you also notice if Uh, Those are the tribes of Israel that we talked about. Joshua divided up the land. And you'll also see a lot of ites in there. Those are the ites that they had not gotten rid of like they were supposed to um, in their obedience to God. Okay, our study guide, you have a map on page 20. I just like colors better and I think it shows it better. But you do have a study guide you can refer to. They are sent, they go from Bethlehem to Moab. And I just wanted to show you this one because you see, it was a long trek. They, I, as far as we know, the Dead Sea didn't open up for him, although God could have done that. As far as we know, he did not. So this is quite the trek they made. We're not told actually where in Moab they settled. You know, if they settled more in the north, it wasn't quite as far. But either way, back in the day, that was, that was a piece. In Ruth, we read that the man, his wife, and two sons went from Bethlehem to Moab. Remember the time of the judges, the cycle we're in. Now I want you to look at the second judge. Do you see, what's his name? Say it, because it'll be just fun to hear how you pronounce that name. 
Ehud. All right, so Ehud was the second judge. I want you to notice who are the oppressors when Ehud, remember the cycle that there's gonna be an oppressor that comes in as God's loving discipline on his people. Who are the oppressors? The Moabites. Newsflash. Where did they go? To Moab. Notice also, if there, there are, scholars disagree on exactly when the time period is. We know it's during the time of the judges. We just don't know exactly which judge, but if the one source is true, and it really did happen during the time of Gideon, that, look at this time span there. That's 50 years. So there are people that are alive in Israel that remembered the oppression of the Moabites. Do you think this was a friendly little jaunt to a new neighboring place? I'm gonna tell you, no, it wasn't. When they went to Moab, that was their previous oppressors, okay? All right, just keep that in mind. Again, you see the importance of studying the Bible in totality and understanding a little bit behind what's going on. And we're gonna study more about the Moabites, by the way, in day four, which is two weeks away. So I won't talk any more about them. Let's talk about the who. Who are we studying? Well, we met some characters in Ruth 1, 1, and now we get some names. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah and the other a woman named Ruth. But about 10 years later, both Malon and Kilion died. This left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. What's the man's name? I'll wait for you. Elimelech. And his name, by the way, means my God is king. What's the wife's name? Naomi, her name means pleasant, my delight, lovely, my joy, sweetness. Then she has two sons. What are their names? Malon and Kilion. Malon means weakling, mild sickness, and infertility. Not looking real good for Malon. Do not name your child Malon. (laughs) Kilion means pining, consumptive, sickly, perishing, comes to an early end. Now, what were they? This is a trick word here and here. What were they? Ephrathites. I'll take that mouthing of the word Shana. Shana. Ephrathites. Now, that's important because what Ephrathites were, they were an aristocratic clan with high social standing, a family of means, so this was a wealthy family that was leaving. You'll, you'll run into the Ephrathites later in 1 Samuel. Um, David is described as an Ephrathite. The two wives of the sons, who are they? Orpah and Ruth. Okay, we don't hear anything more of Orpah after this sentence. But Ruth, obviously, is who the book is named for. So she's the daughter-in-law of Naomi to get every straight in your head, all right? Now, Ruth, interestingly enough, it's the only book in the Old Testament whose main character, and I put that in quotes, is a Gentile. She is not Jewish. She is a Moabite. I want, uh, there's one more main character, by the way, that you're going to meet later, 
uh, as, you keep, as you listen this week to the whole story, you'll find out one more main character. But I must tell you, the, the main character in the story, in every story in God's word, is God. Now, there is a tendency, how many of you were with us last year when we studied Hosea? Okay, there's a tendency sometimes to uh, make the hero be someone other than God, like Hosea is a prime example of that. But we learned clearly as we studied God's word in the book of Hosea that Hosea is not the hero. God was the hero of that story. And in the book of Ruth, you're gonna see that Ruth is not the hero, Naomi is not the hero, nor is the character you're about to meet as you listen to the whole book this week. He is not the hero, God is the hero. People are always just people, God is the only one who is God. So anything good in the people that we see as we study Ruth is just an emulation of what God actually is. It's a glimpse of God's character. So when we see the way that Ruth loves Naomi, that's a picture of God's love. When we see how this other main character you're gonna meet loves Ruth, it's a picture of God's love. So although God doesn't speak or physically appear, God is at work. He's involved in the detail and he changes lives. So this is the book, the places, the people, we'll be studying together for the next nine weeks and I am excited to learn about God with you as we look into this book of Ruth, not just to do another Bible study or to do your first Bible study, but to actually know God, to meet the pilot, to know the author. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the gift of your word and thank you for including the book of Ruth for us. Thank you for the gift of your spirit to teach us and for each woman that is here and wants to be transformed into the likeness of your son. We trust you to do your miraculous work in our hearts and in our lives. In Jesus' sweet name we pray these things, amen.